Welcome to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Every week, I'll be sitting down with a sales executive where they'll share their stories and experiences that produce game-changing results. Let's be honest, sales can be a tough game. I'm sure at some point, we've all delivered a less than stellar demo, been ghosted by a client or two, and sometimes maybe we did more talking than listening. And that's where I can help. The stories and insights our guests share can be applied to your own business, your territory, or with your team, so you're not reinventing the wheel. Our weekly tactics and strategies help you get out of your head and start creating your own path towards game-changing results. Welcome back to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Now, with October being Women in Sales Month, we have chosen to interview women every week to really increase the visibility, awareness, and get women's voices out there, both from the individual contributor and the sales leader uh, level. And today, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Amy Franco. And Amy is the author of The Modern Seller. She's a keynote speaker. She's a sales consultant, strategist, and trainer. And the focus of the conversation was on the importance of culture. And, you know, when you look at sales leaders and their core responsibilities, they, they create the culture. But also looking at the last two and a half years for the pandemic, you know, what was within their control and what's not? And we, and we kind of dissected that as where can we lean in and where can we focus that's within our control? And part of that was just that initial vision, that strategic vision, where we want to go and how can we pivot or be agile within ourselves, the decisions we make, but also the directions and we're taking our team. And Amy defined agility in, in a way perhaps that, that we don't think about it. And so uh, definitely encourage you to lean into that and listen to that part of it, but also just having the self-confidence, the self-belief to pause before we make that next move and just to take stock of where we are in the present and where we want to go so that we're not reactive, we're not desperate, and we're doing things thrown confidence, thrown strategic vision and where, where we ultimately want to go. And the importance of that is, as a leader, our team is looking up to us. And if they see this in, in us, we're modeling the behavior for them. So they too are going to take the pause. They're going to be more intentional with their customer engagements. They're not going to be trying to pull a deal across the line that shouldn't go. They're not going to be pitching and pushy they're going to look upward and go, what, what are they doing up there? Okay, they're intentional. They're leading with transparency. They're vulnerable. Wow, this is a new leader who doesn't have all the answers, and they're letting us know that, and they're inviting us to contribute, to have a collective discussion. That disarms your team pretty quick and builds trust. So how can we as, as sales reps do the same? How can we be okay with not having all the answers? How can we be more self-aware? How can we hold each other accountable? So we talk about a lot of things, especially about change and to let go of, of the stuff that's not within our control and, and really just focus inward. What, what, what's our level of self-awareness? Where do we need to lean into for improvement? And where are our strengths? Because when we can recognize them in ourselves, there's a good chance we can recognize them and hone them in our team. So if you're a new leader or an existing leader, definitely encourage you to take a listen to this. Amy shares many tactical uh, stories from her journey, from her customers that we can put into practice immediately. So I highly uh, enjoyed the conversation. Amy was a, a delight to speak with, a wealth of knowledge. And as always, I'm always learning. So I, I guarantee you will enjoy it as much as I did. So thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. 
So welcome to the podcast, Amy Franco. I'm so delighted to, uh, to speak with you today on, on a lot of things, but really the focus is culture. Likewise, it is great to be here with you. Awesome. So, you know, when you think about the, the environment we're in right now, we're, we're coming out of the pandemic, you know, there's, there's an economic downturn. There's things we're hearing about quiet quitting. You know, we're starting to get a, a resemblance of back to normal. So, you know, when you think of all these things, and then on the other hand, you think of culture, I just want to start with, you know, how important is it for companies to actually have a culture, a defined culture in the first place? I would say having a defined culture is really make or break for companies, especially right now. And as you were sharing that and asking me this question, I was going through my, my, mental, my mental list of all the different clients and prospective clients that I've worked with or I've come across in the past year or two. And to me, the, the defining difference between the ones that are really, really successful and the ones that are maybe just treading water, if you will, are the ones that have visionary CEOs or visionary sales leaders that say, you know what, there's all this stuff going on here around us, all the disruptors, all the challenges, the ones that we're looking at today may look different six months from now or a year from now, but there's always going to be this stuff going on, right? But I'm going to choose to not let the stuff outside affect what I want to create inside. And therefore, we are going to create the right growth culture. We are going to create the right sales culture. Because I also believe that you either, it's kind of like personal brand. You either actively cultivate it and build it, or you let outside forces do it for you. And, and which one do you want it to be? The really successful companies are the former, where they are actively and consciously building it. You know, when you think about sales leaders and really understanding their purpose or, you know, why they want to join a company, because a lot of, there's a lot of movement going on now, and sometimes it's a shiny penny or it's a few extra dollars. But just with what you said, if they're not really sure, you know, their purpose and they're not leading with intention and kind of understand their why, you can see how that would contribute to perhaps allowing that external noise in and the vision being blurred and then everything downstream, you know, being impacted negatively, unfortunately. So what are your thoughts on just really having intentionality, having purpose on why, why you want to get into leadership in the first place? One of the interesting things that I see, and, and you may have seen this too, Karen, is that um, you you get people who are really successful as individual sales professionals. They are really awesome at running their territory, owning their space, being successful. And then they might be tapped for some kind of leadership role, which they may or may not succeed in because the skills of being a sales leader are different than the skills of being a sales professional. There's certainly some crossover, but there's some very unique differences between sales leadership and being a sales professional. And so understanding why you want to be a leader and getting the development and the coaching to be a successful leader is also a big part of sales culture, which starts from that, that top, that CEO that says, I'm willing to invest in building the right sales leaders so that the sales leader can build the right teams. I just think that I see that so often where the sales rep is promoted and, you know, it really is a disservice to them and also the people that are falling under them now because all they know is product. And like you said, there definitely is a crossover, but they lack, you know, the, mo the understanding of, unfortunately, you know, you have to drive results through people. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think, again, even what motivates one is going to be different, motivates a team. And again, back to culture, you know, that's going to have an impact. And so what would you say 
you know, either to the leaders who are promoting, you know, these, these individual contributors to a leadership role, or even to the individuals themselves, like what can they do to really set themselves up for this new position so that they are successful, but also that their team is successful? Yeah. So, so if I kind of take that from the angle of someone who is considering a leadership role, that might be a place to start. And if I were someone who's considering a leadership role or maybe a CEO or another executive leader in the organization has tapped me on the shoulder to consider it, I think the first thing, there's probably two or three things you could do. The first is to really take some time to reflect on what would it take for me to be successful in this role and how much does it resonate with me to move from an individual contributor role to a leader leader role? And then the other couple of things that I've recommended to folks in the past is shadow some leaders in the organization or maybe shadow some leaders in your industry and get a sense for what the day-to-day is like and what you think about that. Because the day-to-day of a leader is going to be different than the day-to-day of a sales professional. So just getting a sense of what does that actually look like if I were to step into a day in the life of, of an existing leader. And then I would say the the other thing is to consider a leader assessment. Um, when I work with clients, I will assess their organization uh, using a very sales-specific uh, set of criteria. And you can actually do that for your leaders. And you could use it as a development tool and a determination to say, hey, you have some really excellent leadership qualities here. Let's work on what you need to cultivate a little bit more. Let's amplify what you're doing well so we can actually prepare you to be successful. I would say most leaders get tapped on the shoulder. They apply for a role. They're put into the role. A lot of organizations don't do that type of meaningful development to help them be successful. And that's probably a lot of the reason why. And I think we had this conversation in our in our prep where we talked about, you know, the average tenure is anywhere, what, between 18 to 24 months for a sales leader. I see that repeatedly in organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all great points. And, and it is sad for, for everyone that it's such a, um, a low tenure. But with the three areas you, you just mentioned there, Amy, you know, what I wrote down is just that self-reflection piece. And I yeah. think, you know, what I love is that, that assessment, because sometimes we're unaware of our strengths or the strengths that align to our role. And so when, when someone else perhaps is required to bring those out in us, the awareness comes like, okay, and then we can lean into them. But in the absence of that, we, we really don't know what's contributing to um, us doing well, what our strengths are, where our areas of opportunities are. And, and then I, I draw a line to our team. And if we can't see that in ourselves, how then can we coach and see those, you know, see that in our team and, and we can't. So I really feel strongly and I see so much of that like you that they just promote for the wrong reasons. And, and I think it's like if you can play the long game and even as the, the individual who's being promoted, just recognizing, you know what, let's take our time here. You've, you've recognized some areas of opportunities. How can we grow together? How can you support me? How can when I further develop myself so when I do get into this role, I'm ready. And then, and then that mindset and that approach is that what their team takes if they're not pushing deals across the line that shouldn't finish. And, and it's just kind of this, let's overall pause, do the right thing, and just not, um, not be so reactive. That last thing that you just said about taking the pause and not being so reactive, that is so hard to do because everybody's running a million miles a minute right now. They're running quarter to quarter, month to month, week to week. 
I feel that it takes a very intentional, special leader or individual to actually take the pause to say, all right, what exactly are we trying to accomplish here? Whether it's building a lead, you know, leadership role or we're considering some type of different strategy or maybe introducing a new product to market, whatever that is, to actually take the pause and to do the background work to determine, hey, is this the right fit? And then how can we make all of our time and financial resource investment actually make this pay off so we're not just jumping from one thing to the next having maybe a little bit of success, but we're selling ourselves short because we're not doing all that due diligence and we're just reacting to whatever's around us. Mm-hmm. And think about if our goal is to be agile and we need to pivot, but we, I, I just look at the difference between reactive, reacting and responding. And so I think when you react, you haven't taken the pause and you can pivot your team, but you're pivoting in the wrong way. Yeah. Agility is an interesting thing, isn't it? And I, and I, I delve into it in, in my book, The Modern Seller. I believe that agility is one of, uh, I get into five different capabilities of a modern seller. Agility is one of them. And agility is an interesting thing because there's a misconception about it. And the misconception is that somebody who's agile is always moving from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And circling and pivoting and all this stuff, like every single buzzword you could think of, right? And really what someone who's who uses smart agility is they're very strategic and decisive. And they they take the time to to use that that word which I love to to reflect and respond versus to react and move. And because they are more strategic and more decisive, they can do things in a way that is it's kind of blending moving quickly, but doing it in a way that's really calm and consistent, kind of opposing forces, if you will, that's when someone's really smart with agility. And they may let something go for a while to say, okay, let's see how this unfolds. Let's see how this works before we decide to take a pivot. And let's see what data we need to help us make smart decisions. So agility is its an amazing capability. I do think it's often misunderstood. And there's, there's just a lot of misconception around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I think a lot of people would would agree with or perhaps see that, it, that it is moving quick. And it's like, well, <laughs> if you're moving in the wrong direction, you know, it doesn't matter. The right. Speed, you're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> or if you're you're pivoting, if, um, eventually you're going to do enough pivots where you just get back to where you started and you've just pivoted in a circle. So yeah. it's... <laughs> But you know what it just reminds me of when I, when I played basketball in high school? When you're pivoting, you always have one foot placed on the ground and it's the other one that pivots. Yes. So oh, my gosh. About, I played basketball as a kid. But yes, just, that's a great analogy. I, I just thought about it. So just think about how that one foot anchors you and allows you to have that uh, you're not impulsive. And, and I think, you know, when people can pause, I think they have their their confidence is shining through and they have a belief in themselves going, hey, I don't need to ru- I see everyone else around me running, jumping ship, reacting, knee jerking it. I'm cool to sit back because I trust myself and I believe in myself. And, and I think that doesn't happen. That inner trust piece, it's, it's that like that inner confidence, that inner trust. That's a big part of being. I think just successful in life, but especially successful in sales and in sales leadership. 
And um, I was I was doing a doing a webinar for a client a number of weeks back, and, and the the topic was around being a trusted advisor. And as I was researching and putting together the content, I, I had this you know kind of moment strike me. And I don't know if I read it somewhere or what it, what it was the catalyst for me to think of it. But the idea is to be trusted by other people, you first have to trust yourself. And the way that you trust yourself is through that, you know, that, that reflection, that, that assessment, that following through on the small things that when you follow through and you honor your commitments on the small stuff, all those are little trust builders that help you to be Mm -hmm. confident with, with the big stuff. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of that idea of building that inner trust, that inner confidence. Those two things are so connected and they're so connected to being successful in sales. Yeah. You know what I would add to that? I think they're successful uh, to be successful in life because when Mm -hmm. you, when you stop breaking your promise yourself and it could be as simple as, you know what, I'm not having a glass of wine (laughs) in weekdays. And then you slip away and you start eroding trust that as you're saying, I'm going to do this, you know, secretly you're not. And, And then it's like, well, why am I even saying this? Because there's an incongruence. And so I think those micro um, habits and those micro thoughts, they, over time, they erode at your self-belief and your self-trust. Yes. And it's amazing how the small stuff in life gets into the stuff with work. Mine, mine is morning workouts. I have worked like crazy to become a morning workout person, which I'm just not by nature. And every time that alarm goes off at, I don't know, five fifteen in the morning, it's like, I hit the alarm and then I'm having this like mental talk track where it's like, I don't want to get up. No, you have to get up. No, but I don't want to get up. You have to get up. And all the mornings where I actually get up and it's like, all right, I'm going to do this. It's like honoring that commitment. It's like, mm-hmm. all right, that was my first success of the day. Yeah. And it's it's all those little things that then add up to, okay, well, I'm going to honor my commitment to uh, do this prospecting block. I'm going to honor this commitment to work on this part of my, my sales profession. And all this stuff is connected. Yeah. And, and I, I too struggle with that. And I would be lying if I, if I said I didn't, but I, I changed my language to, I get to do this. I get to work out. You know, ah, yes. So it's not, it's not an obligation. Like my husband's just out there doing some stonework. He was like, I gotta go do this. I'm like, you get to do that because you are fit. You can bend your knees. You're, you're not arthritics. And so I think we can, you know, as you said, the small things, like even the small habits, over time, they're the ones that drive the huge impact. But in, in the moment, it's like, it's not a big deal. But if you, if on the flip side, if you're doing small habits negatively, again, over time, that compounding effect, it does turn out to be a big deal. And like you said, prospecting, if you're not doing these daily requirements for selling daily, you're going to see it. And, you know, when you're looking at your quarterly reviews and your pipeline's empty, well, what you're, what you should be seeing in 90 days is a result, you know, or what you're seeing now is a result of the past 90 days, right? Yeah. Success really is a compounding effect of the activities that we take on. So if, we, if we're taking on high quality activities, we're following through on our commitments, that all that has a compounding effect, which which ends up with creating success. Mm-hmm. And so if you take that back to when we open on culture, you know, yeah. how, how does how can we do that as leaders? How can we embody that so that our reps feel that and they're inspired and motivated to take that pro- approach. Yeah, so there's probably a couple of different ways to, to look at that. If you if we look at it maybe in the macro view, the, the big picture view first, 
is what is, as an organization, I'll just like use a sales organization as an example. What is a sales organization, if I'm the leader of that organization, what is my vision for the culture that I want to create? So, so you, you have this, this big picture of what you want it to want it to be. And a lot of times that culture falls into, a, there's, like, there's four categories that will typically fall into. There's your, your strategy category. There's your people category. There's your technology. And then there are your, um, your processes. Th- those, are, those are some of the underpinnings of culture which we can maybe dig into that in a moment, but I, I wanted to make the connection to the individual rep first. All that big picture stuff only matters if the smaller picture activities are in congruence. So let's say, for example, you say, we want to be a culture of really putting our clients first. You know, that that's really, it's broad. But let's say how that might play out in a, in an activity is maybe you're coming to the end of a quarter or a half and you're looking at your pipelines and you're looking at all these deals that, you know, hey, could we pull these in to this quarter or to this half to make our number or to exceed our number or whatever it is. But maybe that isn't in the best interest of the client. Maybe it's not even in the best interest of your organization because you're going to have to drop prices or discount things in a way that you wouldn't normally. Those little sub activities are counter to the culture that you're saying that you want to create, which is we want to, you know, be in the best service of our clients, whatever that happens to be. So it's really paying attention to how are the little activities that we are either endorsing directly or maybe we're not in, or indirectly, are they additive to our culture or are they eroding our culture? So if you were talking to a sales leader there, like, how are you, how would you invite them to hold themselves accountable to this or even to increase their awareness to know that they're doing this in the first place? Mm, that's a really good question because I, the accountability part is, it's probably one of the hardest pieces. Like we can put process into place, we could put skills into place, but that kind of, that that leap from to integration and accountability is probably one of the hardest leaps. So if I were having this conversation with a sales leader, I might look at it, pick it apart in two ways. I I might ask the sales leader, tell me a little bit about your own accountabilities and and how you stay accountable yourself. Mm -hmm. Like me for myself, I need an accountability partner to help me to stay accountable. I know that's how I'm wired. And do you know how you're wired in terms of how you would like to stay accountable? And then if I were to maybe turn that lens onto the team, do you know your team well enough and have enough trust with your individual team members that you could understand how they can be accountable? Because accountability is what leads to success. So if we frame it up in a way that, hey, if we hold each other accountable, leader and team member, how do you like to be held accountable and how can I support you in that? And it could be, it's you know not easy, but it can be as simple as some of those conversations to start building that trust and building, like building the bridges to that accountability. Mm-hmm. I think those are two great points, Amy. And it just, what, what I, what comes to mind there is that servant leadership and just, you know, a lot of times you see this leading through fear and dictatorship, but when, when you can mm-hmm. have those open, honest conversations and say like, Amy, how, how can we support each other? How can I support you? What communication style, what preference? And really 
because you might think, oh, everyone likes Zoom or everyone likes this. It's like, well, I think if you're going to connect with your team and, and move the needle individually, you know, it's important to just ask these questions. And then there's trust built, but there's also this vulnerability that says like, we're, we're doing the same thing. I have a different title than you, but like, I need you to hold me accountable as much as I'm going to hold you accountable. I, I'm this, it, this is reminding me of a story of a, of a colleague who um, is an individual contributor and big organization and, you know, first, second, third line leadership levels. And there was somebody at the very, very highest level of the organization, like a third level leader who had been promoted into this role. And to your point about fear, really kind of ruled the team, the teams by fear, Mm -hmm. um, really, really numbers driven. And not that you can't be numbers driven, but it was so over the top that it was really a fear-based type of leadership. And that trickled down to the teams to the point where people were starting to leave the organization because they had just become exhausted by the fact that it was a fear-driven, fear-driven leadership style. It came, it came out, it, it came out as very um, dictatorship-like, I guess, if you will, but it was really rooted in fear. Um, and then I contrast that with another colleague who had a new um, new manager, new new to management, just completely had sales experience, but new to management, who just took an entirely different tack and said, hey, listen, I'm new to this. There are things I'm going to get wrong. I'm going to learn from you as much as I hope you learn from me. And we're in this together. So I just want you to know that I'm here to learn to be a better leader. And that changes the entire dynamic of the relationship, but it wasn't, it was because that person had going back to that inner trust and confidence, Mm -hmm. had that inner trust and confidence to be okay saying all that. And it's created an entirely productive, healthy team dynamic. So it's like you have the capabilities. It's, it's interesting how they can all swing too, Mm -hmm. just with the change of, of personnel in organizations. Yeah. You know, transparency wins. (laughs) <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but think about like for me, some people say, well, who are you in sales and who are you, you know, outside of sales? And I'm like, I'm, I'm oh, the same geez, person. Right? I, I hope I'm the same person. <laughs> <laughs> what you see is what you get. So if you don't like yeah, it at the right. grocery store, you're not going to like it on a discovery call. But it just <laughs> it, it shows me like like that's that leading in fear. For me, yes, you said fear, but it's also insecurity. And it's like yeah. And, and then I just think if you're hired to drive results, look at the results you're getting. Your, your churn rate is, is over the top. But like if you just compared, if that upper echelon compared and said, let's look at like, let's really hone in on culture and look at companies who are excelling in their, in their um, revenue. And where can we draw it back to the importance of culture? Because I think in some of those organizations, there's just this unawareness at that whole upper level that they don't know what's contributing to it. And they never consider, and it might be in their defense that they've, this is all they know. It's like when I go to companies about coaching they were never coached and they did okay. So, you know, we don't do that, but yet they can't pinpoint specifically what's driving results. And so it sounds like there's some of this in that we didn't know any different, but it's like, if you look at the importance of culture, like that's the overarching umbrella of why people want to show up every day. Yes. And for me, sales culture is one piece, an important piece, but one piece of your company's overall culture. And that culture is created and driven 
at the top of the organization. And sometimes this is a function of organizations growing and becoming more complex that maybe the very senior level leaders can lose sight mm-hmm. of culture, whether it's the culture that they've intended to create versus what's unintended. The most successful organizations I see with sales culture focus on culture overall. And the CEOs in the, the, the their bat person's direct reports are very, very invested. So just one, one example from my own life, I'm thinking of two clients right now. They, they are new clients who um, I've begun work with. And the CEO of both of these organizations has been extremely invested in the work that we're doing together. They have shown up to calls with the team to plan. They have shown up to the trainings that I've conducted. They're there, they're visible, they're interacting with the teams and showing support for the teams. That's an entirely different dynamic and that that's that's culture right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just one one lens that I get the opportunity to see. And I will if I were to kind of build that out, I would imagine that that same CEO is involved in other aspects of the business, not just the one that I'm I'm associated with. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and I've had similar experiences. And for me, I'm taken back because I'm thinking of all the things you can do. You're sitting in this training, but I look around and, and what it does to the team is they feel supported and they feel that, you know, they, the, they're, they're important. And, and this is, you know, the fact that they're lending them their time into this training session or whatever I'm doing, it's a strategic initiative and they're part of it. And, you know, that's, that, that goes a long way. The other piece to that, and this is maybe um, if I were to add to that, is it also sends the message that, hey, this is really important mm-hmm. to our organization. That is why I'm here. And there is a sense of, I don't know, people sit up a little straighter. They participate a little bit more. They're more engaged because they know how important it is to the organization because the CEO or the, the segment president or whoever that senior leader is has shown up to spend time there. You know, it's a balancing act because sometimes I could see it going the other way where there's a bit of, uh, I'm not going to say this because it's going to be a dumb question and they've hired, it's kind of like that role playing when your boss is playing the customer and you're like, I'm not going to disarm here because you're going to think I'm an idiot and you didn't hire me. Yeah. I I see if if they are truly vested, but sometimes I see that that does, uh, the participation falls a little bit and they're just there as kind of a micromanaging looking who's participating versus the first part where you said, like, I'm truly invested and this is extremely important and it warrants my time here. So I, I think if done incorrectly, it can be picked up. Yeah, there's a little bit of a tipping point on yeah. that. Yeah, for sure. Just building off that when the leader's there and, and they're showing that this is the importance of the training. What I find where a lot of people kind of fall is that in terms of the sales leader, they're asking them to drive results in specific areas. But unfortunately, the, the sales team doesn't know what excellent or what good looks like. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're saying like, you know, we got to get our numbers up. We got to do this. But but yet no one's showing them like, well, what should it look like? So what are your thoughts on just instead of hitting the more button, hit the how button? <laughs> right. Ooh, that's a uh, that's a visual there, Karen. We have a more button and a how button and an easy button. <laughs> and a delete button. <laughs> and a delete button, right? Ooh, I like it. That that's a whole other podcast. Um yeah, you know, it's um that's a really good question. I'm just kind of going through just kind of thinking of some examples from my own life or, or from some from some clients um 
lives. So if I were to put this in the lens of leadership, I was doing a training a number of weeks ago with a client and we were having this exact conversation about the need for specificity. We were talking about it through the lens of um, really understanding what our customers wanted to accomplish and what's valuable to them, that need for specificity. But then the conversation turned internally to how can we take that same specificity and apply it to our teams, whether it's um, are we practicing for calls and presentations? Are we um, tuned into the right metrics, not a million metrics, but the right metrics? Mm-hmm. And where we landed with that, because someone said, you know, I really see the value in doing more preparation. And I countered that with the question, so what does that mean? What does more preparation mean? What does it look like? And the, this question flustered this person a little bit because in their mind, it's like, well, what do you mean? What does it mean? Um, and what we landed on was, you know, there will be people in your sphere. They might be direct reports. They might be people that you work with tangentially on a you know, client project or an engagement that they need to understand what what does preparation mean? What does excellence look like? And so we have to be able to be really clear on what it is that that looks like. And because we're getting the opportunity to lead them and we're going to influence them today and into the future. Um, I was coaching a client who was younger in their career, like an up and up and comer in their organization, which I love working with those folks. They are just so engaged and so, Mm -hmm. so into what we're doing. But she had shared the story about how she wanted to prep for a, a client RFP presentation. And when she went to her leader to talk with this person about doing that, she's like, you know what happened is they laughed at me and said, well, we don't need to do that. And I'm like, ugh. Like it was like a knife to the heart, right? Because here you are as a leader with an opportunity to, someone's coming to you to say, hey, I'd really like to practice this so I'm better with the client. And that's the reaction that they get. Mm-hmm. And I I share that story for, you know, anybody who has maybe either had that happen or maybe you did, maybe you were the person in the shoes that said, oh, we don't need to do that. But just really kind of thinking about what the impact of that is and just how, in my particular client's case, just how that really impacted her to, in the future, to go back and ask for help mm-hmm. because of what had happened with that experience. Um, so it was like, it was a real learning lesson for her to not give up on asking for help just because she had one bad experience. Mm-hmm. And it, it's hard. And I think that resilience, perhaps because she is newer, she's got a lot of energy. She's not 25 years in where she's like, forget this. Right. <laughs> in terms of those types of leaders, because I run across them too. And sometimes they're not willing to go to the bat. They're not like you just that example. And that, that is so sad because when they're coming to you, they genuinely want help. And that is your job. So yeah. what do you, what, what's the suggestion? Like, does she go above their head? Does she talk to them? Like what, what, what can she do? Cause this person obviously might be in the wrong role here or might be taking the easy coasting route. But again, the impact is so detrimental because again, think about she might be missing potential. She might lose this RFP, not get shortlisted, which is she's going to feel that in her, in her pocket as a result of this person um, not doing their job, not supporting. So what, what can we do to overcome this when we get some friction at that layer? Yeah. So, so what we ultimately landed on, and this is a really kind of heavily matrixed organization, which in this kind of situation, I feel could actually be an advantage. So what we landed on was first, like, 
Hey, just first of all, try not to take that personally because that's more about them. Mm -hmm. It is about them and it's not about you. And also just as a future leader, just tuck this experience away for when somebody, you know, 10 years down the road comes to you for help, you know, you'll, you'll yeah. remember, remember this experience. But beyond that, like, what could you do tactically in the moment? What we landed on was, can you go to, um, go to some peers to do some practice? Is there someone else involved that maybe it's not that individual, but someone else involved that you could go to, to work through some of the details into practice? Who else could you go to that would care that you could work through that and you might have to kind of sidestep that individual. And beyond that, it's also making a decision about, you know, do you want to make an example of that person mm-hmm. or politically speaking, is it not worth it to do that? Yeah, no, a lot, a lot of choices. And, I, and again, depending on where you're at in your experience, you may just not have, unfortunately, the voice yet, which is sad, but to stand up and go like, this person's been here 10 years, I'm here like one month, what's going to, what's, what's the chances they're going to listen to me. I know. Right. And then it's, um, it, you know, kind of p- finding peers with your voices, finding mm-hmm. a voice with your peers is what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe some others that would be more amenable to doing that kind of practice work mm-hmm. and still getting the work done so that you get the skills. But yeah, it's a, it's a hard situation all the way around. Yeah, it is. It's another force to navigate through. But one thing, you know, and why this bothers me is that when you think about what's going on now, there's a lot of talk, even on LinkedIn about, a lot of people are in motion. They're listening to podcasts. They're taking, they're reading every sales book and they're in motion. And when you're in motion, you're, you're kind of hiding. You're just, I'm going to read another one. I'm going to read another one. And even what you just said mm. about preparation, that's great, but you can only prepare so much. You have to pull the trigger and you have to execute at some point. So it's like, how can we, how can we actually role play? How can we create a safe space for our team to practice? And, you know, just segments of it, segments of the demo, segments of the discovery that we know we don't want to sound robotic, but this isn't happening, right? And and then when you see this person going to the boss <laughs> proactively mm-hmm. and getting shut down, it's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Right. And uh, there there is a such thing as over prep. You know, someone I'm 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 highly um, I'm very type A, as you might have caught on, and uh, very type A, and someone who you know, does a fair amount of prep. I've had to learn the other side of that equation, which is a little bit of improvisation Mm -hmm. and going with the flow. I've actually taken improv classes, which is maybe a whole other story uh, to delve into because I needed the other side Mm -hmm. of that equation. I'm very, I'm task oriented. I needed the other side of the equation to help me work on that agility and that improvisation and just, just to be in the moment and not worry about what was next or saying the absolute right thing. So it's also knowing where we tend to fall on that spectrum and how do we, what do we need to balance ourselves out a bit more? Um, so I, I do believe there's a such thing as over-practicing. When I'm over-practiced, I'm nervous. I get nervous. Um, when I am, when I have, that, again, that inner trust and confidence, it's like, hey, you know what? I really know, know this, or I'm with somebody who really knows this and we can play off of one another we can get to a point where we feel confident about what we're doing, but also just knowing you can't script out everything. You're going to be asked the tough question or the conversation is going to go in a different direction. That's also part of agility too, like being able to go with it and bring it back in, but go with it to a degree because you have to be able to be in that ebb and flow of the conversation. Mm -hmm. 
I love that. And I always say to my clients, we have to dance in the moment because mm-hmm. there's, there's scripts and there's frameworks, but there's times when they throw you a complete zinger. And totally. for, for me, the definition of confidence is showing up with no, just all I have is my brain. I got my brain in my 25 years of experience. And if, if, I, if, I, if you need something outside of that, I, I don't have it. But I just think when you show up and you don't have books and pages and pencils, and it's like, you got me. And I'm okay to go like, that's a really great question. I've never, you know, just give me a moment. And, and I think that's being secure in yourself. But, but even for you knowing, like having that self-awareness to go, I, when I'm overprepared, I get nervous. And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't have that. They just, they're just going through the motions and they have no idea what's working, what's not. And it's just chaos in their heads. I, you know how I learned that is um, just by, by virtue of the, the work that you and I both do, you know, in, in the space of, you know, skill development, I, I do a good amount of keynote speaking, whether it's virtual or it's in front of groups. And how I really figured out that I needed to sort of get a little bit out of that task orientation mode was when I would write um, content to deliver for a keynote or for a, um, for whether in person or, or virtual, I had started to feel like I was overly reliant on having everything scripted out. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing that, I, I could feel myself being nervous, like, oh, did I forget this? Or gosh, did I say that in the right way? And I had to change my approach because it wasn't translating well in front of groups. And and I and I've had I I'm a big believer in coaches. I've had speaking coaches, I've had executive coaches, I've had therapy coaches, you know, I'm very much into that type of self-improvement and worked with a speaking coach who helped me kind of figure that out. And I had just had to make some minor changes to what I was doing. And, but it forced me to rely on that inner trust and inner confidence mm-hmm. and that agility to not be so reliant on being scripted or having all the right words at all the, at exactly the right time. Mm-hmm. That's what's great about podcasting when you screw up. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I remember with my, with my very first podcast, I remember being really nervous. Like, mm-hmm. am I going to say the right thing? And, and I've been, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts now over the years. I've lost count. It's, um, it's, it's building the muscle, just like anything. Like you're going to be bad at it for a little while, sales skills, whatever it is, whatever you're learning, leadership skills, you're going to be bad at it for a little while or just not as good as you'd like to be before you get good and feel confidence and trust. And that's where, you know, fast forward, you know, however many years I've been doing this, it's a very natural conversational flow, but that's not the way it started. Yeah. And I think it's, it's good. You mentioned that Amy, because a lot of people listening to this might think, Oh, you know, she's so polished and she's sounds great, but you know what, rewind 20 years or however long ago. And it's like, we all have to start somewhere. And I think once we can acknowledge um, that failure is part of our path and our journey, there's different degrees of it, but the quicker, you know, the quicker we'll get, we'll get over it and, and look forward. Cause a lot of people are like, well, what if I fail? And they're like, forget the, what you're going to fail, <laughs> embrace sure. it, learn right. from it. But next time it's going to take you less time to dust yourself off and get back, get back in the game. That reminds me, um, when I was doing some research for the book, um, I came across some work from, um, oh gosh, it was a podcast that I listened to from Dan Pink, and Mm. he was interviewing this um, professor from Stanford. Her name was Dr. Tina Selig, and the conversation was about failure, and what Dr. Selig 
did with her students at Stanford is she would ask them to keep a failure log. Mm-hmm. And I don't recall exactly how long she asked them to do this for, but but the idea was is that, you know, for a certain period of time, each day or each time it happens, you write down something that didn't go your way, something you failed at, something that didn't just didn't turn out according to plan. You write it down, you write what happened, you write how you felt in the moment, and then what you learned from it. And the idea of taking failure or things that just didn't go according to plan and putting words to them, writing it down, but then using that as data and connecting what you learned from it, what she had started to find with her students was, is that it took away the stigma of, you know, failing or something just not going right, but also the data part of what could I learn from it so that I, it doesn't, you know, I could lower the odds of it happening again. Mm-hmm. And I found that really fascinating, just taking taking what we sometimes internalize and we get really worked up about, putting it into words on paper changes our relationship with that failure, but then we can also figure out what we could learn from it. And I just thought that was really cool and a fascinating experiment. Mm-hmm, totally. And, and I think even the word is a trigger word. And if we could change it to feedback or something less um, where we take it personally, that a lot of when I see people fail and, and they, they pivot or they, you know, take a different approach as a result of the learnings, what what's on the other side is huge and they would never have achieved it otherwise had they not failed. So it's just like you start left, but you're going to end right. And thank God, like they always say, say thank you. And I know in the time you're you're like, that's not the words I'm looking for right? because something else is coming or better. And in the universe or whatever, just said like, no, this is the way you got to go. So be grateful that you were shown the new path forward. And to take that kind of full circle all the way back up to the top of the conversation about culture, if you are as a leader can create that kind mm-hmm. of culture, you have to have it in yourself first, I believe. If you are someone who really doesn't have a great relationship with screw ups and failure and just figuring out your way, it's hard to lead a team to do that. But if you can build that type of culture in relationship to failure and trying things, experimenting with -hmm. things, um, you can build that. That's culture right there. And that creates a whole different level of trust and accountability, people being willing to be more innovative. Um, I was at a conference a few weeks ago. I was at the um, Outbound Conference. And Mm -hmm. um, well, you and I were talking a couple weeks ago. You had Anthony uh, in Reno on your podcast, and uh, he's one of the founders of Outbound. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a VIP mastermind session with the lead, with the VIPs that um, uh, came to the conference, and they, they got some special time with us. And we were talking about, you know, what do you do? Like, how do you push your teams to try new things? So Things like video, for example, doing video prospecting and using different ways to connect with people. And it really, what we were talking about was you really have to embrace as a leader, allowing your teams to do that stuff with some guardrails, but allowing for people to try things and experiment with things and creating that culture of trying and failing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And celebrating failure. Um, Because I think, and when we don't do that, where there's a reluctance to try. Yeah. I got to get to the point, Karen, where I celebrate failure. I don't know if I'm quite there yet, <laughs> but I can at least make peace with it and, and use the data. So maybe that maybe that's my own work in progress yeah. to actually throw a party when <laughs> something goes wrong. I know. I know. Maybe maybe a better word is make peace with it. And it's not immediate. It's not yeah. immediate. But I always I look at it and I, I always see a learning what and sometimes what I'm getting better at is going that was out of your control from the beginning. So it's easier to detach going like that. 
like COVID wasn't your fault. <laughs> right. Right. Let it control go. the controllables. Yeah. <laughs> let it, let it go. <laughs> Um, have you heard of, you know, Spanx, the CEO of Spanx? I don't know. Um, Sarah yeah. Blakely. You know what? I'm familiar with Spanx. I don't follow it too closely, but I just think I, I thought I saw recently that the founder of Spanx, um, Sarah Blakely. Yeah. Um, and I think she's the CEO as well. They just named yeah. a successor. Okay. She, she just with building on what you said, she growing up, her father would always say celebrate failure. And so they would go around the dinner table and they'd say, what did you fail at today? And she's like, what do you mean what I feel at? And they would get in trouble because he's like, you're not trying. So then one day she was like, you know, I asked, I put my hand up at school today. And he's like, and what happened? She was like, I got the answer wrong. He's like, great. Because she, she was confused, but she goes, but that you tried. And tomorrow you're going to put your hand up again. So we do that at home now too. And I just think like, that's a willingness to try. So even if you're wrong, how else will you know? I would rather be wrong than sit there with my hand up, down, wishing I could have the courage to put it up. And that right there is, um, you think about the ways the, the, a lot of sales is, um, success is our internal talk track, right? Mm -hmm. the, the things that we say to ourselves, whether we know that we're doing it or it's completely subconscious. So if you play off of that idea, and I think I remember her sharing that story, maybe somewhere in a podcast. And, and that is, that's a really great example of how the ways, the messages that you receive growing up really do have a big influence. Not that, the, I mean, that can be overcome, right? But it really does have a big influence in how you tend to show up as an adult. So if you take that same example and said, well, you know, I don't want to hear about anything that you failed at. Everything has to be great right out of the gate. You probably wouldn't have had somebody who was willing to try to become an entrepreneur and introduce this entirely new category of um, product into the marketplace had she not had that type of training, if you will, from mm -hmm. her family growing up. Um, so a lot of what we learn growing up does become our internal talk track. And the more that we have some awareness of that, and we have, might have to work to overcome that, mm -hmm. but um, it's all that's so connected to what we tell ourselves oh, and what we tell ourselves turns into our actions and our behaviors. Yeah, 100%. Even when you think about teachers and parents, because they're the, the ones at the fundamental level, and I was listening to Gary V the other day, and he was saying just about the school system and how structured it is. And he's like, I celebrate because I got D's. <laughs> he says, but, but I'm known for being empathetic and compassionate. And what he drew a parallel is, is that people then rely on these results of the grade system and this really structured box theory. And he goes, these are mm -hmm. the people when they go to corporate, they need someone to hold their hand. They need their performance. And they're not willing to think outside the box versus those who are kind of lean into their uniqueness and, and don't follow completely the rigidity of, of the system. And I'm not saying go, you know, rogue or anything. Those are the risk takers. Like those are the people that are going to be entrepreneurs that are going to be okay having difficult conversations, having radical candor. So I think it's finding your, finding what works for you, leaning into it and being okay with it, that you don't conform, that you don't. And, and if, and if the company is so misaligned with that, maybe you need to look at another company. Yeah. And um, just, just listening to you talk about that reminds me of the idea that structure and flexibility don't have to be two completely separate things. Having some level of structure and those, gui those guide rails in place is what can give you the freedom to actually try new things, to be entrepreneurial, to you know try, try the new sales technique, whatever it happens to be. Um, that's why I'm a big fan of frameworks. 
And that's a lot of the way in which I think and the way in which I, I teach or facilitate my content. Because a, a framework to me gives you some structure, but it's not rigid. Mm-hmm. And you can use the elements of it that work well, but you can adapt for different types of sales scenarios. So, or just, just leadership scenarios, whatever it happens to be. So I, I like thinking and in, in facilitating in frameworks. Yeah, I, I do too. And, and I just bring it back to the art and science and mm-hmm. of life and of sales and the science is that structure, but then you have the freedom to connect even in a virtual environment to check in with your audience. And, in, and when you don't have a structure, you have no idea where you're at. They know that. <laughs> and then you've lost everything. So I, I don't love the scripts. But I think if you, you just need a framework and I talk about the rule of three, like how can you have, you know, in the, if, even if it's not threes, but threes are memorable, have five, but allows you to jump in and jump off knowing where I, where I'm at when I go back on. Yeah. And, um, I was, I was with a client, this was a year or so ago. And, um, as part of my strategic selling program, we have a whole section on how to have a better sales conversation. And again, being a fan of frameworks, I introduce a framework. It has actually five pieces to it. And so I introduced this framework and I taught the framework and the CEO of the company was in the back of the room. And (laughs) this was so funny. After I got done sharing this, he stands up and he's like, oh my, that's exactly what you do with every single one of our conversations. It's like, you know, pre-plan and like the conversation dialogue and, you know, the follow-up piece of it. It's in, and he was kind of laughing as he said it. He's like, so A, you really do practice what it is that you facilitate, but gosh, we have really great productive conversations and there is a science behind Mm -hmm. it. You, you, practice it and it's natural, but there is a complete science behind it that actually your clients will appreciate. And I don't even mind that they know that that's what I do. It's like, Hey, this is what I teach. I'm going to teach your people how to do the same thing. It's so funny because my clients said the same thing about me, but it it shows like you're going to get a predictable experience. I'm not going to leave things out. And like you said, you can over-prepare. I don't need to prepare because I rely on the framework. I can fill in the gaps, but I have my, it's like a GPS. I got the big turns. I can fill in the, the small bits in between. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know about you, my experience with that is it does take some time to get there, to have that trust and confidence that you can just have those big guideposts and fill in everything in between. I do find that maybe if you're new to an industry, you're new to a company, or maybe you're, you know, you're just new to your career in general, sometimes um, that can feel a little bit intimidating so you may do a little bit more practice and preparation, but as you become more confident with it, you gain more knowledge, you, and this is also agility too, mm-hmm. you can look for the patterns and fill in where you need to, because you now have that other experience that you could rely on. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a great point. I mean, when I started, I did not, I would feed the deer in the headlight <laughs> when I'd get something out of, out of context. But I think that's a great way. You just think about every conversation. What did I learn? And if there's a similarity or an overlap between persona or industry, how can I then lead with that in my next conversation for anyone, as you mentioned, who's new, but even who's perhaps entering a new vertical, you know, are there trends, are there patterns that I can introduce that give them, oh, okay, they're, they're not new to this. She knows what's going on. And again, it's a great opportunity to start the conversation so that you're, it's, it's based on assumptions perhaps, but you're coming to the party, bringing something. Yeah. But coming to the party, bringing something I feel is more important than ever these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is maybe, this is maybe more a little bit on the topic of relationship building, but for someone who is, um, 
maybe for those of us that are a little bit more seasoned in our careers, we have learned for a long time that you re relationship is everything. You have to build the relationship in order to, you know, earn the business in order to you know, grow a client, whatever it is. And there is certainly a lot of truth to that. Where I think things have changed a little bit in the sales environment, and I think this talks to some of our earlier comments just about so much disruption and distraction and so many options out there that it's easy for a decision maker to be like, gosh, Amy looks like Karen and Karen looks like Sue and like we're, we're all the same, right? Mm -hmm. And you're kind of battling this world of sameness. So being able to come to conversations with ideas, with thought-provoking questions, with something that is shows, shows our expertise, like the road from rapport to relationship, I believe goes through demonstrating expertise. And there's an art and a science to that, but we oftentimes to earn trust and earn the right to continue building the relationship, that other person really has to experience something of value from us. Mm -hmm. And that something of value is often a new idea, some type of expertise. So I think that that's where the, the nuanced change has happened. It's not just, oh, let me come in and, and ask you questions about your family and your kids and all that. That stuff's important, but it's not first anymore. It's further mm -hmm. down the road. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and I think the virtual world has kind of compressed that in that you have to hit the purpose button pretty quickly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just think the bar is very low now to differentiate yourself because it does take a moment to actually look at the other person's perspective and just consider for a moment what they want to get out of the call. What are their hopes? What are their fears versus us pitching and, and just, you know, just pausing for a moment, like what's going to take to actually get them to agree to the next step. And the next step is not going to be a real hard close, but just so that we're advancing. And I think when we're too inwardly focused and seller focused, we miss all these things that are just so obvious in front of you. Yeah. And, and the work that I do and for anybody who is doing something that is more complex, even on the transactional side of sales, like if you're selling something a little bit more transactional, it's really never in my experience has it been a one conversation from you know start to finish. Hey, I've met you, we've had one conversation and I'm ready to work with you. It, I've never had that experience. It's always multiple conversations, maybe multiple people are involved. And I like that idea of what's the next right step? Mm -hmm. If you can get to the next right step and the next right step after that and continue, that's just consistent forward progress. Mm -hmm. And it's like those small consistent steps is what will help you get to a successful a successful end result. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what they're looking for. And unfortunately, what I see is when I do call coaching is the, the sales reps asking the customer, <laughs> they're not professional buyers. This might be the first time they bought your product. So we need to lead. And that's where that confidence comes in. It's just like, we, like we've got this. We'll do the heavy lifting for you. And, and then they can loosen their grip a little bit. But in the absence of that, they're hanging, like status quo wins. Yes, status quo absolutely wins. I have this conversation a lot with clients that you know, you're going to always come across your, your competitors, the people that you're going to see virtually in any scenario, but you're, you're fighting change, the status quo more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And you're, you are having to overcome resistance to change. 
more than anything else, even with your best customers. Mm -hmm. um, there might become a time where they're reluctant to change or to continue on because of other things that are happening in their environment. And it can be easy to get desensitized to that because they've been our best customers for a long time. Um, but if we just always hold that level of awareness, I think we can be smarter and help. And we're, we're navigators. We're, we're helping customers change and we're helping them navigate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this kind of brings us full circle, Amy, that we, we started with change and what we can, what's within our control and what's not. Yes. And, and just now again, like what, what can we do to change ourselves? How can we invite our customers to change and recognizing sometimes one of us isn't going to change and, and that means the partnerships dissolve and that's okay because some things are time stamped and, you know, we've had a good run, but let's, let's, let's forge ahead separate paths. Right. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise on, you know, everything culture, um, how you've woven your five pillars from your book into a conversation. And so I imagine people are going to be interested as to where they can learn more or perhaps connect with you. And what's the best way for them to do that, Amy? The two best places to find me, you are welcome to send me a, uh, a LinkedIn request. And uh, please let me know that uh, we connected through uh, Karen's podcast. And uh, I'm happy to accept those connection requests. And then um, secondly, you are welcome to go out to amyfranco.com. A lot of free resources out there to help you on your sales journey. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for me uh, chatting with you. And again, I'm always learning. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us. Thank you. And likewise, this was great. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for tuning in again and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the K2 Sales Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Our weekly sales insights are geared towards sales reps, leaders, and small business owners to help navigate the complexity of modern day sales. Our tactical takeaways help you put a plan in place to start creating your own game-changing results. Until next time, happy selling. This podcast was produced by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub Productions. Find her online at podcasthub.ca.